Well, that would be our prayer this morning, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, that you would show us how to overcome the flesh, the devil, and the world, to be conforming to the image of your dear Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would represent you well as your children here in this wicked world. Father, that we would know how to put those things which are behind and that we would know what it means to press on. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for our Bibles. And now teach us as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you listen as I read Psalm 1? Just listen. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Oh, not so the wicked... They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What kind of a tree are you today, this first Sunday of 2010? What kind of a tree? A big, strong one, or one with withering leaves. It was this summer during our, one of our camps that uh, we were out back. If you're, if you're new to us, you need to know that we have about 20 acres of woods down on the other end of our property. And all summer long, we run kids camps. We have a great time. And I was down for one of the camps and I was just uh, standing there and looking and I noticed up through the trees where it was very thick vegetation, down below the sand courts, and I was over by the pavilion, I looked up through the trees and I saw brown leaves. And it caught my attention. I'm interested in our trees down on the other end of the property. I am not a tree hugger, but I have a great respect for a tree and what it takes to grow a tree and all that can be done with a tree. The other thing that you need to know, if you don't know, is that I heat my house with an outdoor wood stove, and, it, and it's a really a consuming fire. And in weather like this, I have to burn a lot of wood. So all summer long, I'm kind of making mental note through the woods of trees that I'm going to be able to, to heat my house so that Janie Baby can walk on those hardwood floors in her bare feet and, and be warm. And so I noticed those brown leaves and I walked over and I got through the briars and the poison ivy in the middle of that thick part and I, I stood there below that tree. It was about, well, this is three feet up the trunk right here. It's a big tree, 60 or 70 feet tall, I imagine. It was a beautiful tree and it was still filled with leaves and all of the leaves were brown and I noticed the woodpeckers had begun to work up high on the tree and some of the bark was flaking away. Interesting, isn't it, that that tree had come up and it had flourished and it had come to maturity that in the spring and the summer with all of the leaves and all of its foliage and somewhere along the line in the heat of the summer it couldn't hold up and it turned brown. I've been worried about our red oaks. It's a big red oak. We've been losing our red oaks back there, and I've been wondering why. And About two weeks ago, 
I went to that tree. And I took my saw and I started in and I was cutting my wedge because I wanted it to fall a certain way. And I no sooner started cutting and I could feel my saw just go right in and I knew. It looked like such a good tree. I couldn't understand. Why did that tree die? We must have a disease in our woods. Well, I knew and made mental note, this tree is soft in the middle. I had to worry about it because a lot of weight standing up in the air. And when you cut a big tree down that's hollow in the middle, it can go on you in a hurry. Nothing to hold it up. And so as I cut, I watched and sure enough, down she went right where I wanted it. And I walked over. I stood and I looked at it. And I thought, what a shame. What a shame for that great big red oak. Probably took, I don't know, 60, 70 years for that thing to grow there. What a shame to see that big oak lying on the ground like that. But it was rotten in the core. It couldn't live. It couldn't hold up. It looked like a great tree. What a shame. You know what's a greater shame? What's a greater shame is when you get an email like I got yesterday from a pastor friend about a mutual pastor friend who's out west of the Mississippi. And he fell with a great fall this year. And I just heard about it. He was in ministry. He left ministry. He divorced his wife and left his little baby girl. And he married a woman he had an affair with. What's going on? It looked like a strong tree. What a shame. Let me ask you a question. How sure are you that you're not going to fall in 2010? How strong are you? What kind of a tree are you? Are you a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season? Or are you a a hollow shell? Do you have soft spots at the core of some rot? You see, sooner or later, it'll tell. You can only go so many years when you're hollow in the middle. This didn't happen overnight. But after a while, it came to a breaking point, and though it could pull the moisture up out of the ground and life was still in that tree, there came a point in time where the tipping point hit and everything shriveled after that. Like chaff, the psalmist called it, like chaff that the wind just blows away, it'll just rot away. Will you turn with me back to Genesis this morning, please? To Genesis chapter 20, and we want to talk about this topic of of how not to fall. It's the first Sunday of a brand new year, and, you know, I don't know, we have all kinds of people represented, and we're all at different levels of spiritual growth. And isn't it interesting how the Word of God makes application to our lives and many different levels? Will you let the Word of God touch home to your heart today? Different ones need this message in different ways. Some of you maybe are very aware of the pith and the pus and the rot that's in the middle. And you know you need to do something about it. And you're trying to decide if you're going to yield to it. Others of you, you think, I'll never fall. I wouldn't do that. And the Word of God says, you better take heed lest you fall. And some of you young people need to realize that It doesn't take very long at all to go hollow in the middle. 
You see, we have an example for us in a most interesting story in Genesis chapter 20. Do you remember where we were when we left off before Christmas? God had just destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We had ended with our last message on a sinful, dysfunctional family. And we had talked about the disgraceful final word on Lot and his daughters in their incestuous relationship up in that cave, up on the side of a mountain. That's where we were in Genesis 19. We completed the chapter. And when we read chapter 20, and it's our intention to get through the entire chapter today, it's a self-contained story. It, it comes in almost as an interruption. It's, it's like, what is this all about? You're also going to recognize it. It's going to have a familiar ring to it. We're going to have some lessons from Abraham, who right now is coming into his maturity. He's really peaking in his walk with the Lord. What's going to ring, ring a bell with you is a story that we covered Back in chapter 12, chapter 12 was 25 years before chapter 19. Chapter 12 was when Abraham was just figuring out what his walk with the Lord was all about. He had just received the promise of the covenant. He had just found out that he was the one and through him a son would come and God would bless the world through his heir and make a great nation and people out of him. We'll give him a little slack Boy, when you're young and you're inexperienced, you make mistakes, don't you? Then we find out that 25 years later, for seemingly no reason at all, he capitulates to the old ways. He has a little soft spot or something in there that he'd better watch out for. Let's read the story. It's pretty interesting. It's uh, kind of just a historical account of what's happening in Abraham's life here. He is now Abraham and his wife is Sarah. Remember, God has changed their names. Back in chapter 12, they were still Abram and Sarai. 20 verse 1 of Genesis. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. From there, for a while, he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said to his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And didn't she also say... He is my brother. I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. And then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return to her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all of his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. And then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, 
What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, uh, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me, Sarah, honey. Everywhere we go, say of me, he's my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah to his wife to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. And then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his slave girls, so that they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Isn't that a remarkable story? A few comments on the context and what's happening culturally in this story and a few things to maybe help us just kind of get an angle on it and understand what's happening. There are some critics of Scripture who believe that this is a retelling of the story when Abraham and Sarai, when Abram and Sarai went down into Egypt 25 years before this. When you compare the two passages, it becomes evident that that is not a retelling of the same story. There's different characters. It's different geographical location. I don't think there's any confusion whatsoever going on in the historical account. We're also going to find out when we study ahead in Genesis chapter 26 that guess what? The son of promise Isaac is going to do the same thing that his dad did. He's going to lie about his wife. I think exactly what we have going on here is just a... Just a Another aspect in a man's life where he's vulnerable to a weakness. He's vulnerable to a, to a sinful dynamic in his life. And even though he's 25 years along in his life, he yielded to a temptation in his moral house breakdown. You might say to yourself, what's the big deal? Why did he do that? What was that all about? That's because maybe you don't struggle with telling the truth. You've got another sin. You've got some things that have been going on in your life for a long time. And some of you have walked with the Lord for a long time. And every once in a while, it begins to rear its ugly head. And you say, where did that come from? That's how I used to be. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how a vulnerability to an aspect of sin or weakness of the flesh can always be right there lurking below the surface all of our lives. That's why, as I've already referenced, the Apostle Paul would say, let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. I think that's exactly what's going on in Abraham. I think that he slips up here. I think that it's wrong what he did. I think that it's a bold-faced lie. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. I think it was fear-based decision-making. It was fleshly, and it showed a lack of faith in God. Another thing that's of interest in this passage is that we're in a window of time that's only about a year long. Flip back one page to chapter 18, verse 12. Look at this. 
uh, verse 10. Do you remember that right before we got into the story of God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, that Abraham was sitting at his tent and three visitors came. Remember that? And one was a a pre-incarnate appearance of, of our Lord Jesus, no doubt. Called him the Lord. It was a Christophany or a theophany at least. And two were probably angels, messengers sent from God. And the three came. And remember we had that lesson from Abraham's model on hospitality. And then as the evening approached, the two men got up and they went down into the valley. And you'll recall that from where Abraham lived, he could look down on the plain and that's where Sodom and Gomorrah was. And the Lord stayed and talked with him while the two messengers went down and they went and warned Lot. Remember, the men of Sodom attacked him and Lot barely got him in his kitchen at the, in time off his porch. And finally, they had to drag Lot fussing and kicking out of the town before God destroyed it. But but the Lord stayed and talked to Abraham. Remember what he said? Look what he said. Verse 10. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Here's Abraham on the threshold of entering in to the greatest explosion of faith the world has ever seen and received the son of promise, The valley has been destroyed. Lot is out of the picture. He's no longer going to be mentioned. Chapter 19 is over. And in chapter 20, it just starts out, and Abraham moved. Nobody really knows why Abraham moved. The Bible doesn't tell us. It could be that that was just a kind of a characteristic of him. You know, kind of like a a man born out of time to be in the mountains or something. Just every so often, he's got to pack up and move. He ends up back where he's supposed to be because that's where God told him to be, under the great trees there and in the promised land. The Bible commentaries that I study seem to reference the most, it seems to be a logical speculation, that it's possible that the reason he moved is that after the Lord destroyed the plain, remember, as I've referenced already, they could stand in front of Abraham's tent, and they could look down on the plain, and when God destroyed that, Sodom and Gomorrah and the other two cities there, that it evidently changed even the topography to the degree that it wasn't very nice there for a while. And so Abraham was just moving his herds and his cattle, his sheep, to maybe just find a different place for a while. We don't really know why he moved, and it's not... Necessary to know why. The Bible doesn't say, so we'll just leave it there. But he moves. When he moves, he has this similar encounter that he did with the Pharaoh in Egypt. Another point of interest in the story is that this Abimelech, it's likely, it's not in 100% agreement with the Bible students, but it's likely that the term Abimelech is a term like Pharaoh. It's not necessarily the guy's name. It's more, he's a, it's a position of a kingdom. And it's a king position. His grandson is also going to be called Abimelech, and that's who Isaac's going to lie about with Rebekah, about his wife and his sister. Same lie, same same fear. One other thing, too, that you have to remember about is, because I think this is a good question. If Sarah is so old, Paul said she's as good as dead, and she laughed about having a baby, what is it about this Abimelech guy that he sees this old woman coming into town and he wants her for his wife? Because, you see, culturally, that's what kings did. 
these Abimelechs, these pharaohs, these Caesar guys, these King Tut guys, whatever their eyes beheld, that's what they did. You see, we live in a, a nation of laws, pretty much, where even the president pretty much has to do what everybody else has to do. Okay? And our senators and congressmen pretty much have to do what everybody else has to do. Pretty much. In this culture, they didn't have to do anything the people did. In fact, it was part of their political, their political prowess, their political stature to lord it over their people. And one of the things they do, if, they, if you were walking down the street and the, and the king wanted your wife, he took your wife. He had huge buildings and dormitories filled with women. Another thing that he would do is to smaller surf kingdoms and smaller city-states just to make an agreement with them and to show his authority over them. Some guy like Abraham, for example, who was a man of stature, had hundreds of servants, lots of animals. He had lots of wealth. And he's coming into this turf here. The king may have taken Sarah as his wife or a concubine less for physical reasons and more for political reasons just to show his strength of authority over him and to dominate and to show, I'm the king around here. I'm Abimelech. You ain't Abimelech, I'm Abimelech. And I'll take her, she can go live over there. Some, for some reason, Abraham was afraid for his life, afraid that he would even be killed. And he capitulated to his fear and his lack of faith. Another thing you need to think about is that this, that the NIV calls Gerar, is the earliest settlements of what is the Philistine nation. It's over by the Mediterranean, and the Philistines, you know, are the people that are, were often were enemies with God's people Israel. And this is who Abraham finds himself encountering, and here he is. What an interesting story. What's going on here? I thought that maybe the best way we could benefit in the next few minutes from this passage in making some application out of this story to our lives on this first Sunday of 2010, that maybe we should look at why Abraham did this. And let's, let's make a little list, kind of from the negative, and let's title it as a subtitle to our sermon this morning, how to fall in 2010. Let's use Abraham as a model of a man who caved in a little bit here, who had a failure moment in his life. How to fall in 2010. First of all, let's go back to our text now. Genesis chapter 20 and verse 1. I want you to see that if, if you want to fall or if you're going to fall in 2010, do this, number one. Position yourself to be as unaccountable as possible. If you want to fall in 2010, position yourself to be as unaccountable as possible. Look what it says in verse 1. Abraham moved on from where he was supposed to be in these locations, and he goes over by this Philistine part. Nobody knows him over there. They don't know that he's God's man. Where he lived, he had lots of contacts. Do you know what this feels like? Do you know what it feels like to be out of your normal turf, to be out of the norm and to find yourself in a location where no one knows you and no one knows anything about you and then to recognize 
that you potentially are more vulnerable to your weaknesses at that point than you've ever been in your life. There is no one around Abraham to call him up on anything. There's no close friends to look in his eyes and say, Abraham, what's wrong with you today? There's no weightlifting partner to say, man, what are you, what's wrong with you today? What's going on with you? You're not yourself. There's no brothers at church there to say, are you sure you're okay? He just up and moves and he moves into enemy territory and he's all unaccountable and isolated. I remember when I was 19 years old and I was en route to Anchorage, Alaska via Northwest Airline out of Chicago O'Hare Airport. I was going to work in the summer, as was my practice, to get my way through Bible college. I was young, I was only 19, and I flew out of uh, Chicago on a night flight and landed in the Seattle-Tacoma airport at midnight, or I don't remember the time, it might have been 2 a.m., it was, it was a red eye, it was late at night when we got out west, and you know how the time changed and so forth, and I, I can't remember how it worked. But it was late at night, and I had to wait until 6.30 the next morning to get the Seattle-Tacoma flight up to Anchorage. This stands out in my mind of all the times I have flown and was by myself flying. But I remember realizing that night as I walked around the Seattle-Tacoma airport. You have to understand, I had been in a very controlled environment at Appalachian Bible College. I had been around close buddies in Christ. I had been singing in the corral and the music groups with guys and girls and I had been on the soccer team and I was in class and I was in my dorm discipleship groups and and I was out preaching and serving the Lord and and all of a sudden I'm in Seattle Tacoma Washington listen there's no such thing as cell phones in 1980 here okay I just really had a feeling that nobody knows where I am and I, you know I had a sense that I was glad it was the middle of the night and that the cages were all down in front of the bookstores and newsstands. And that as I walked around, I had a sense of the presence of the Lord and I wanted to live for the Lord. But do you know that feeling inside where you just know, nobody really sees me. At three o'clock in the morning, walking the empty corridors of the Seattle-Tacoma airport. You want to fall in 2010... Find places in your world where you are not being watched and where you are unaccountable. Some of us need to guard our practices, don't we? Some of us need to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and drive to a meeting rather than fly in the night before and stay at a hotel by ourselves. Some of us need to go with the group instead of going by ourselves. We need to guard our heart, don't we? I believe that Abraham capitulated to this vulnerable spot in his life and had fear partly because he was in unfamiliar territory. Can I say too that this is a Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 passage? To not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, to encourage one another unto good works all year long in 2010. That's why I need my church family. That's why I need my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm no good at standing alone out there. You're really not strong. 
when you're by yourself. Secondly, if you want to fall in 2010, like Abraham, do this. Number two, compromise your integrity. Compromise your integrity. Don't you know that Abraham knew he was lying about his wife, his relationship with his wife? He said, wait a minute, Pastor Van, that was the truth. Listen, he was manipulating facts. He was processing things and making things appear a certain way for his own advantage, and he knew it was wrong. I wrote this in my notes. A 50% truth, because that's what Abraham had, right? A 50% truth designed and told to deceive is a 100% lie. You got it? When I take part of the truth and I massage it so that I can deceive you, I am 100% a liar. He compromised his integrity. Do you know that feeling too? Don't you know the feeling when you know you're crossing lines of conviction in your life? Uh, Some of you have had experiences that have caved you in in the past. And it's taken you years to dig out. And 25 years has gone by. And you find yourself timing the coffee bar encounter. And it was 25 years ago that a coffee bar encounter day in and day out got you in trouble already. Old ways popping back up. That's what happened. And he compromised his integrity. I sat in a class. I sat in a class um, on staffing for churches a couple months ago with Pastor Everett down at ABC in the master graduate program. And it was valuable. And we're trying to learn some things about adding staff and how to think about staff and so forth. I wrote something down in my notes. There was part of the outline, and then part of it I added. One of the instructors was saying, there's three things you want to look for in a, in a staff member. First of all, you want to look for competency. Duh. If you can't do the job, don't hire them. Competency. Second thing they said is you want to look for character. Look at their character house. The third thing, then, is you want to look at chemistry. How are they going to fit in with who you know? On the side of the margin there, what I wrote... On character, because they were saying, make sure even with pastoral searches that you check the references. Check what's really going on in their character world. One of the lecturers that we were listening to said this, quote, Character is deep-rooted in adults and seldom changes after mature adulthood. Character is deep-rooted in adults and seldom changes after mature adulthood. Now, that is not to say that Christ doesn't transform lives and praise God he has and does and is, right? And it doesn't mean that you have left the old ways behind. I think particularly in this instruction, what they were saying to us was basically that if Somebody doesn't brush their teeth and wear deodorant when they're 19 and they don't do it when they're 29. Don't expect them to do it when they're 49. Okay? All right? If you're a slob back here and you're a slob in the middle, you're going to be a slob at the end. Adult character, character traits of your life, of discipline and so forth. But you know what? I think this is a little bit true in the area of our godliness and our godly character. I think it's easier to change when you're young than it is when you're old. 
When you compromise your spiritual integrity, you're looking to fall. And most people, most of us know when there's some soft spots working on us. A little rotten spot. It's going to spread like gangrene. Abraham positioned himself to be unaccountable and inaccessible. He compromised his integrity quickly. Let's just rattle off a few more. How to fall in 2010. Number three, repeat foolish behavior from the past. Repeat foolish behavior from the past. I've kind of already emphasized this. Chapter 12 of Genesis was 25 years before. He was 25 years younger. He's now maturing in the faith. He's on the threshold of receiving the son of promise. Listen, you know what the lesson is? Old guys can be stupid just like young guys. You never get too old to fall. You never get too old to fall. You never get to relax. You never let down. That's what Satan wants, isn't it? He wants to get you with those schemes and the fiery darts. He wants the soft underbelly of the weaknesses of our flesh, doesn't he? Fourthly, like Abraham, forget about your testimony as a person of God. Abraham moved. He positioned himself to be unaccountable. Abraham lied about his wife. 50% truth equals to deceive is 100% lie. He compromised his integrity. He had already done this in the past. He fell right into an old practice, an old pattern. He repeated foolish behavior from the past. And now look what he does in verse 9. Let's move ahead. Abimelech gets this word from the Lord. You can see that in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. It's kind of like getting a, a visit from, you know, Luigi with a pinstripe suit. If you don't stop seeing this woman, I'm going to kill you. God visits him in a dream and he says, Abimelech, that's a married woman. Get her out of here or I am going to kill you. It scares him to death. He calls in his staff. He evaluates the dream that he had. And in verse 9, look what it says. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you brought such great guilt upon me in my kingdom? It's funny here, isn't it? The pagan king has more fear of God than Abraham has a fear of God right now. At that moment, do you think Abraham had the ability to whip his little, may I ask you a question track out of his pocket? Say, let me tell you about God and what he's doing in my life. Abraham had lost all credibility, just like he had to Pharaoh. We talked about this then too. He had no ability to stand in a position as a man of God and represent and be the voice of God before the pagan king. The pagan king is, why did you do this to us? What is wrong with you? He lost his testimony. No credibility whatsoever. Abraham goes on to give these lame excuses and I want you to notice that what he says right away Abimelech asked Abraham, verse 10, what was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, well, I said to myself, there's not going to be any fear of God in this Philistine country. And so they will kill me because of my wife, because she really is my sister. I said for her to say that and I said it. 
Who's not fearing God? The king is shaken in his boots with the fear of God. In fact, if you read the last few verses of the chapter again, you're reminded that he starts pouring on the gifts to Abraham. And in the middle of it, God enriches Abraham in the middle of his own mess that he made, gets him back up to where he belongs. And Abimelech is pouring out all these gifts and even gives him silver and money. That's when he says, I think facetiously to Sarah, I'm even giving your brother a thousand shekels here. He knows he's his husband and he's a brother. He's your brother. Get his stuff and get out of here. And you can live anywhere you want in my land. Why is he saying that? Why is he saying that? He's saying it because he wants God to hear him telling Abraham that I didn't have anything to do with this, so don't kill me. He's afraid of God at that point. Not a bad position in which to live. To be afraid of God in that sense. In a proper sense. You want to fall in 2010. Forget about your testimony for Jesus Christ. Forget that you're a representative of a holy and a righteous God. Abraham tells him, I did it because I was afraid. And so I had to come up with a plan. And number five, if you want to fall, like Abraham, live by your own strength. Think small of God. Number five, live by your own strength and think small of God. I had to come up with a plan because I was in new territory and I don't think God could take care of me here. Now, obviously, God wants us to put wood in our stove to keep warm. He wants you to shut the door to keep the robbers out. But I don't have to scheme and manipulate and compromise my integrity to live for God. He'll take care of me. And Abraham was small in his faith. Here's this man, and I think he must have learned his lesson because this is the last time you hear of a failure in Abraham's life. From now on, he's totally a man of God. I think it's worth noting, number six, and finally, as we conclude this section, that this statement that kind of pops out, verse 13, and when God had me wander from my father, he's still giving Abimelech excuses as to why he did this scheme. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me, honey, Sarah, baby. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. How'd you like that? You get married. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. and Mrs., and down the aisle you go, and you're out in the hall and says, okay, now when people go through, the way you're going to show your love to me is say, this is my brother. You know what I get out of that phrase, and I've said it before, is uh, you can tell a lot about a man by how he treats his wife, right? could tell a lot about a man who's willing to suffer here. (laughs) Instead of being willing to die for his wife, he's using his wife as an umbrella of protection. Massaging and manipulating the facts. Number six, if you want to fall, if you're married and you want to fall in 2010, disrespect and dishonor your spouse. Disrespect and dishonor your spouse. Don't you see what Abraham was doing here? He was caving in to the weaknesses of his own flesh. I'm not suggesting that Abraham ended up hollow and rotten and fallen. God in his grace kept Abimelech from sinning against Sarah. God preserved him in his unilateral covenant. He said, you're my man, Abraham. And God even blessed him. And in the end of the chapter, we see Abraham praying. Abimelech's whole staff and his wife had gone sterile. So there were several months had gone by. They couldn't conceive and they knew it. And through Abraham's prayer, God reversed it. God blessed him richly, got him back up where he belonged. I'd say Abraham had kind of a close call there, humanly speaking. Do you want to fall in 2010, maybe about the middle of next summer when you're 
looking great and you're full and flourishing and all of a sudden it starts to turn brown. Do what? Isolate yourself. Become unaccountable. Compromise your integrity like Abraham and lie. Repeat foolish behavior from the past. Forget that you're a representative of the King of Kings. Forget your testimony before a watching world. Live by your own strength and think small of God. Disrespect and dishonor your spouse. Make yourself miserable in your own home. What a great truth and reality at the end, though, that even in our weaknesses and in our faithlessness, God is faithful, isn't he? Listen, some of us need to wake up today. You're doing behavior that you've done for years, and it's a repeated behavior, and you wonder why your life's not going well. You can't, you can't do that. You can't compromise your integrity. You know, oh, God's not blessing me. Of course he's not blessing you. Now, I think it's really appropriate for us to take 10 more minutes to bow our heads before the Lord. First of all, to thank Him for His great salvation and the, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. God can take hollow spots and regrow strong, strong oak again. That's pretty neat, isn't it? I think it's appropriate for us to close out the service. We'll, we'll not rush it, but we'll not delay our communion either. We'll go right to the point. He shed his blood and he broke his body for us. Let's live for him in 2010. Let's be the representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be his church, holy and spotless and clean before him. Let's examine ourselves. Do you know that that's part of communion. We'll look at it in just a minute. Let's bow in prayer. Father, help us now as we sit quietly before you in response to this message and this example of Abraham, that we would carefully examine our hearts and lives, that we would allow your Holy Spirit to bring conviction, to show us how to live that we would be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season and flourishes in a dry and desert land. That's the kind of believers we want to be, Lord, deeply rooted in Christ. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, who was our sin bearer, who took our sin that we can have everlasting life, that we can have newness of life and that the old ways can be gone and the new ways can be being built in us through the power of Christ who gives us strength to do all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.